Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Please sit down. Thank you so much. We do travel an awful lot, and uh, people always say, where are you from, which is quite interesting. And I say, well, I live in Manchester, but I'm from Hastings. And uh, we count it a privilege and a pleasure to be associated with this church. I first encountered Kings. Well, it wasn't called Kings then. What was it called? Hastings Christian Fellowship. It's good to know your history. Um, I first encountered Hastings Christian Fellowship in 1979 when I was 16 years old. You can do the maths. I'm 52 this year. Because some of you, that'll just take about 10 minutes. You've just wasted 10 minutes of your life. So at 16 years old, walking into about 30 uh, of you. Any, who was there at that meeting? Tony and Judy were there? Oh, yeah. Few, yeah, oh, that's right. Yeah, a few of us were there at that meeting, yeah. And uh, it changed my life. Totally, uh, radically uh, altered everything. Uh, I met the person that I was to spend the rest of my life with, Anne, here in Kings. Uh, became an elder here. Uh, Jackie will remember some of the scornful things they used to say about me as a young elder. What did they used to call me, Jackie? Do you remember? You held me in the highest respect. They used to call me the baby elder. That's what they used to call me. Actually, it wasn't Jackie. It was uh, somebody else. Which, uh, Beryl. <laughs> but uh, we owe such a lot to this church. We were sent out from here to help church plant in Eastbourne. Then we went from there to the northeast of England. And then we went from there a few years ago to uh, Manchester, the northwest of England. And we're so privileged to be involved, and I think, in uh, five different continents now, serving, I don't know what it is, about 130 different churches in all sorts of different contexts. But we love it here. We love the warmth and the fellowship, the friendship here. Thank you so much, Sam, for your warm welcome. If you've got a Bible, I wonder if you could turn to Exodus. And uh, I believe God's put a word on my heart for this season from Exodus chapter 33. Interestingly enough, I've never preached on this passage before, but just feel God stirring me for this passage. Let me just set some of the context for you, and then we can open it up together and read it together. God delights to choose people. I love that prophetic um, interpretation we had this morning. Um, It was just wonderful to know God's choosing of us, God's pleasure of us. And God chose a family to work through. He chose Abraham and Sarah, childless couple, yet said through them he was going to bless everyone on planet Earth. And then through a miraculous conception, through a miraculous story, through Isaac, their son, and then through Jacob, their grandson, and then through Joseph, and then through the journey down into Egypt, God started to bless and multiply this family. They prospered in Egypt. Uh, And suddenly, over a few hundred years, this family grew from a handful to, some would say, two to three million people, causing all sorts of interesting occurrences in Egypt, some difficulties uh, in terms of being uh, in slavery under Pharaoh, and then God raised up another man. God loves to do that. He loves to raise up men and women to do his purposes. He raised up Moses to lead them out, because God wanted to give them a land where his glory was going to come, where his presence was going to to be so that he could demonstrate his love, his goodness and his faithfulness to the people of God. So he raised up Moses and through the miraculous uh, whole series of events, which we won't go into now, God 
brings the people of Israel out of slavery. I mean, you imagine what it was like to be slaves in Egypt. Dreadful. Brings them out of slavery. And they're supposed to go through the promised land. uh, Supposed to get to the promised land in about six weeks. It actually takes them 40 years, but that's another story. They go through the promised land. And uh, within a few uh, weeks of being in the promised land, they're camping around Sinai. And Moses goes up to encounter God and has a face-to-face encounter with God. While that is happening, the people should have been waiting in faith. They should have been waiting in patience. They should have been waiting in excitement. What's God going to say to us when he comes down this mountain? This is the God who's brought us out of slavery. This is the God who's delivered us through the Red Sea. This is the God who's been with us in the wilderness, gave us manna and meat and water and been with us. But they actually start to grumble and mumble and complain and moan. And they start saying, actually, we had cucumbers in Egypt. We had garlic in Egypt. Uh, Yeah, they kind of forget about the slavery. They kind of forget about the bricks without straw. They kind of forget about the impression. They start to grumble, where is this Moses fellow anyway? Perhaps he's got lost up the mountain. And they pressurise Aaron, who's kind of deputy leader of the people of God at this stage. They pressurise him to make a God for them. And he fashions, well, he says later to Moses, we gathered all the gold, We put it in the fire, and this calf came out. Uh, No, it says you fashioned a calf. And he fashions this calf. They start to worship. And Moses and Joshua come down from the mountain with the tablets of stone, with God's way of living, God's whole heart for how we'd have community. He comes down with this, and he sees and hears. And Moses says, it's not a good sound I'm hearing. And there's debauchery in the camp. And Moses is very angry, smashes the tablets, and a plague is started, and the people of God start to die. It's a terrible, terrible situation they're in. And then Moses, because he understands the covenant, because he understands the goodness of God and the mercy of God, starts to intercede, actually. He starts to say to God, God, would you please forgive this people of their sin? In fact, would you please put their sin onto me? He becomes almost like a Christ-like figure. He takes the sin to himself. He says, blot me out. take I'll take the sin but please forgive these people and God who loves to be merciful God who loves grace God who loves to pour out kindness and mercy says I will stop that I will stop the judgment yes you are forgiven and it's an incredible act of mercy but there is overshadowing this the passage that we're about to read in Exodus 33 a judgment that comes on the people of God a dreadful thing God says to them so we're going to pick it up in Exodus chapter 33 Then the Lord said to Moses, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 3 and then 12 to 23. Then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt. Don't you love that? I think actually God brought them up out of Egypt, but that's the way God puts it. You brought up out of Egypt and go to the land I promised on oath. And here's the covenant relationship to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob saying, I will give it to your descendants. And this is the new deal. This is the new contract. I'll send an angel before you to drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but, and this is the new deal, but I will not go with you because you're a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. Love God's sense of humour in that. 
Let's then pick it up from verse 12. This is Moses' response to that. It's the most awesome response, I think, in the Bible. There are a few others who pray like this, who argue like this, who intercede like this. But Moses, to me, stands out supreme. Moses said to the Lord, You've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name. And you have found favour with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I might know you and continue to find favour with you. Remember that this nation, and he's going to say this three times now, this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And like Moses just wants to make sure he drives it home. And Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other peoples on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you've asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. And then it's almost like Moses wants... Again, another guarantee, like a down payment of this, like to totally seal this. He says, and Spurgeon calls this the most awesome prayer in the Old Testament. The Lord, Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I'll proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But you can't see my face because no one can see my face and live. And then the Lord says, but there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by... I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will remove my hand. You'll see my back, but my face must not be seen. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that your word is living and active today. Lord, your word is as much relevant and true today as it was when this was written down. We thank you for your presence with us this morning. We ask you, Lord, now would you send your Holy Spirit upon us to unpack this, to understand that we might live in the light of the glory of the Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I mean, it's not a bad new deal. The first deal he's offered, it's not bad. You know, you are going to go to the land, I've promised, I'll give you everything you've wanted. I'll give you an inheritance, I'll give you the land. And guess what? I'll even put in an angel for good measure. I'll send an angel. Now, if that was me, I think that was a pretty good deal. You, you know, we heard about maybe an angelic encounter this morning, which is quite encouraging. Maybe that's good. Maybe in the back of my mind, I'll be thinking, perhaps I'll get on God TV with this. Maybe perhaps I'll get a book, The Day the Angel Visited Us. The day, you know, the, uh, people are so fascinated these days with angelic beings. And I'm not trying to diss that at all, but I'm just saying Moses is not... That's not enough for Moses. He doesn't say, that's a great deal, thank you, I'll take the deal. No, he doesn't. He says, no, Lord, I want your presence. Your presence must go with us. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Because you think, what would have gone with them if God's presence hadn't? Now, perhaps those sort of things don't cross your mind, but they cross my mind because I think, surely God is everywhere. Surely you've done enough theology by now to understand that God is omnipresent. It means he is all everywhere 
at any time. You cannot go anywhere. In fact, the psalmist says this, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. Well, surely, what does it mean the presence of God is not going to go with us? Well, if you have a look up in the commentaries, they'll often differentiate between the presence of God in two different ways. The omnipresence, that he's everywhere at all times. So Wayne Grudem says this about the omnipresence. He says this, God doesn't have size or spatial dimensions. He is present at every part of space with his whole being. But he then goes on to describe what theologians call, and I believe what this is all about, the manifest presence of God, that you know God is with you. And Wayne Grudem goes on to say this, but God does act differently in different places. God's presence in the Bible means his presence to bless. He is with you. His manifest presence. And that's what Moses is pleading for. He says, I want your presence to bless us. I don't just want a general omnipresence. I want a presence to bless. Is that your heart? Is that your heart when you gather like this? Is that your heart for this town, for this church? God, you'd be with us. God, we would encounter your glory. God, we'd be a people of the presence of God. You see, Jesus was so aware of the presence of God. He was so aware of his Father working. That's why Jesus could come into us setting like this and not be overwhelmed by the need but look for where the father is working where the father is blessing that's why James can write draw near to God and he'll draw near to you there's a there's a sense of God's presence to bless there was a wonderful moment in our meeting this morning when San just said let's not miss God's presence to bless let's now pray for one another to be filled with the joy of the Lord let's pray for one another to be healed God's presence whether you felt it or not because it's not about your feelings whether you felt it or not, God's presence was with us this morning to bless and is with us this morning to bless. Now, I love the way that Moses, excuse me. I get a very dry throat when I travel. It's like planes, I'm afraid. It leaves a nasty cough. So I love the way that Moses argues with God. I mean, it's quite awesome if... If I was Moses, I would have taken the deal, like I said before. But Moses argues with God. Moses has this set. It's, it's an awesome thing to argue with God. I mean, so have you ever thought of that? When God says something, you say, no. Surely yes is the right answer. Surely yes, sir, no, sir. Three bags full, sir. Of course, if you want to send an angel. Moses says, no. That's not right. That's not the deal. It's not part of the covenant. It's not what you said. And you get this argumentation. It's a, it's a, it's a strange thing, really. I think Terry Virgo, who started the family of churches we're in, I once heard him say that prayer is arguing with God. Is that your idea of prayer? Is it, oh, God bless mummy, God bless daddy, God bless this person, God bless... Or is it a sense of, God, I want to get hold of your purposes. God, I want to get hold of your promises. It's not, it's not good enough to stay like I am right here, right now in this situation. I'm believing you for breakthrough. I'm believing you for something. I'm going to get hold of God. I'm going to get hold... That's what Moses is like. I recently reread a book by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Pause to genuflect. You have to do that when you mention the doctor. Because you understand that the doctor is not someone who goes in a TARDIS, but was someone who uh, led a great church in London. My parents were part of that church for a season. Uh, probably one of the greatest preachers London's ever known, maybe even competing with the great Spurgeon himself in terms of that title. But he said this in his book on revival. 
He said, I've been reading those who've been used by God. And I find a holy boldness, an argumentation, a reasoning, a putting the case to God, pleading his own promises. Why? I sometimes think this is the whole secret of prayer. And then he quotes a Puritan called Thomas Goodwin. Thomas Goodwin uses a wonderful term. He says, sue him for it. Do not leave him alone. Pester him with his own promises. Tell him what he's said. Tell him what he's going to do. Quote scripture to him. God delights to hear us pleading his own promises, quoting his own words to him and saying, oh God, in the light of this, how can you refrain from blessing us? It delights the heart of God. Sue him. That's a great quote, isn't it? Is that... Is that your attitude in a prayer meeting? Is that your attitude when you're out prayer walking or when you're out, when you're, I'm going to get hold of the promises of God. Do you even know what God has said? Do you even know what the promises of God are for this church? Do you know what the promises of God are for your life, for your marriage, if you're married, if you're single, for your future? Do you know what the promises of God for your children are if you have children? Do you know what those promises are? Because actually God has great many precious promises for us and he wants us to get hold of them. He wants us to grab them and pray them back to him. They're not to taunt us. Prophetic words are not to taunt us. They are to inspire us and to encourage us to pray and to press into God. That's what I love about what Moses does. Now Moses then argues the covenant. And I love this as well, that he's very covenantal in his understanding. It's not just about me. If it's just about me, I'd have taken the angel. You know, I would have, it's not, it's about us. It's about the community. And we live in a very Western world where it's all about I. If you want to sell a product, put a little I in front of it and it'll sell. Because it's all about me and I and mine. It's, the Bible's all about us and you and together and the people of God. And Moses gets hold of this. And God, you can imagine God smiling and loving it when Moses is coming back to him. Just like a father loves his son to quote him and say, Father, but you said, Father. You said, it's all about Abraham. It's all about Isaac. It's all about Jacob. It's all about Joseph. We're your people, Lord. We need to understand, God loves community. God loves, yes, individuals, but it's individuals in a community. One of the New Testament images for us is the temple of God, living stones. But a living stone isn't any good on its own. A living stone needs to be built into a wall to be part of the people of God. You may be visiting this church. You may be part of another church. God bless you if you're part of another church. But if you're not part of a church, I want to ask you, why aren't you part of a covenant community? Why aren't you part of the people of God? You can't be a lone Christian on your own. God's not designed us that way. He's designed us to be in fellowship and in partnership and in covenant community together. And he says this, he goes on to say, how will the nations know? How will they know unless you're with us? Unless you do your acts of power, unless you bless us, how will the world even know? How will the other people know? See, people know when God is with us. They know the presence of God amongst us. People do come into our meetings and fall down and say, God is amongst you. People actually do sense something different about us, which we'll go on to talk about a little bit later when we conclude this. But are you crying out with Moses, God, I want your manifest presence? And God relents in a good way because it was God's plan to do that. God will change his mind when it's his plan to change his mind. When he's always had that plan. When he says no, meaning that you say, Lord, you said, and God says, okay, I'll do what I said. And God 
as it were, says, okay, my presence will go with you. I will go with you. And I love the impertinence of Moses here. He really rams it home. He wants this down payment. He says, well, you said you'd go with us. Well, you better come with us. We're not even going if you don't come. And then he says, now, almost like a proof, show me your glory. I love that about Moses. I love, I love that. Is that your heart? Say, like, God, I want to see more of you. God, I want to see your glory. Now, it's interesting how Moses responds, or rather how God responds to Moses. It's interesting, because he says this, I will let my goodness pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name. It's interesting, isn't it, that Moses asks for glory. God says, I'm going to reveal my name to you. I'm going to tell you who I am. And it's like, well, I know who you are, but actually, I don't know if he did fully at this point. See, that's God's revelation. I, when he first revealed himself to Moses, who are you? I am who I am. It's all about the name. It's all about who God is. And I think as Christians, we're often so ignorant about who our Father is, about who God is. And we need to have more and more revelation about who God is. We need to have more and more knowledge of God, more and more knowledge of who he is. Again, to quote the doctor, he says this, 99.9% of our trouble as Christians is that we are ignorant of God. We're ign- we don't know his ways. We don't know who he is. And this is what God says, I'm going to reveal my glory by revealing my name. And this is my name. This is the way he's going to... What is his name? What is the one he's going to reveal? Is it, is it God is holy? Is it God is just? Is it God is powerful? No, it's God is good. That's interesting, isn't it? It's not the first one I would put up. It is now, having done this study. It's not the first one I would put up. I would have said holy, just, true, powerful, faithful. No, God says, if you want to know who I am, primarily, number one, that my glory is to be revealed in my character, in my name, because I am good. Now, it's ever so interesting, that came through so powerfully from Sam this morning. God is good. I don't know what your view of God is. Maybe it's been tarnished by a family that you grew up in. Maybe it's been tarnished by some experiences you've had when you think, I'm not so sure. Let me tell you this morning, God wants to reveal to us here in King's Church Hastings, God is good. That is the glory of God. The New Testament revelation is very similar. John, who knew Jesus probably the closest to anyone, says God is love. God's good this morning. And he just really wants you to know it. He really wants to underline that this morning. When they dedicate the temple, later on, of course, the story continues. They inherit the land, first of all, with a mobile tabernacle. God's glory comes. Then a little bit later, when they go into the land, they build a temple. And David's son, Solomon, dedicates the temple. Do you remember the story when they dedicate the temple? And it says the priest couldn't minister because the glory of the Lord came and filled the place. I don't know what you imagine that to be like, some mystical cloud, some sparkling dust. I don't know what, what's your imagination. Christians, we don't tend to use our imagination too much. I don't know what that would be like. Whether, what, but it said they all fell down. But this was their response. This is what they sang in response to it. 2 Chronicles 7, it's 1 to 3. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. All Israel knelt and they worshipped and said, give thanks to the Lord because he is good and his love endures forever. 
See, that's the response to God. That's the God that we worship. That's the God that we proclaim. You see, I grew up in settings where I used to hear people preaching on the streets and they'd shout at people saying, you're going to hell. God is angry with you. God, listen, the Bible says that actually it's the kindness of God that's going to lead people to repentance. It's the goodness of God. It's the love of God. Yes, there is anger, but it's anger associated with love. Actually, he so loves you that he doesn't want you to perish. God so loved the world that he did something about it. This is who our God is. He's a good God. He's a good Father. He's a God of love, and he wants you to know that deep within. Now, it's interesting how he goes on, because he then goes on to talk about his sovereignty. I'll bless who I will bless. I'll have mercy on who I will have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. And I would say the whole essence of understanding the Christian faith You may be a visitor this morning. You may be freshly interested in what is it about Christianity? What is this God we proclaim? Who is this God we proclaim? Well, I'll tell you the two things about God. Well, let me tell you a little story first. I moved to Eastbourne in 1992, and one of the first things that happened is Don went on holiday, which is a very unusual occurrence, if you know anything about Don Smith. And uh, he left me in charge of the church and, uh, you know, I was quite excited at first. I thought, wow, this is great. A couple of weeks, I'm, you know, I'm the, I'm the boss. I can do what I like. I can have fun and in the meetings, and I can do it my way. And uh, the first thing that happened is I got a phone call from uh, a middle-aged gentleman called Terry. And uh, this guy, Terry, said, I've just been told that I've got terminal cancer. I, I'm just being told that I probably it's stomach cancer, probably will only live two or three weeks. It's, it's that serious. And I thought, that's not what I signed up for. I signed up for fun meetings. I signed up for, I signed up for leading the people of God, being the shepherd, being in charge. What do you mean? And I thought, oh, okay. So I went and prayed. And I, to be honest, I was totally out of my depth. I was late 20s. I really didn't understand a huge amount in terms of what to say. I wasn't a great counsellor in that sense. And probably I, just, I was grasping for words, really. But two thoughts came into my head. And as I sat in that hospital bed with my friend Terry, knowing that he had three or four or five weeks to live, I got hold of his hand and said, Terry, I don't know what to say, but this I do know. God is good and God is sovereign. And that's all you need to know, Terry. Well, let me tell you, decades later when he wrote his book, <laughs> he didn't even mention me in the book. But he did say a young pastor came to visit and told me something which got me through, something which I was able to feed on, something which helped me through. And he said this, the young pastor said, God is good and God is sovereign. Dear friends, that's all you need to know. What you're going through right now, God is good in it. Now, he's not just good. If he was just good, he'd be like some sort of cosmic Santa, kind of smiling up there, looking down at you saying, I'd love to bless, but I think you're on the wrong list. You're on the naughty list, not the nice list. You know, I'd love to bless you, but I'm kind of impotent. I kind of can't, I'm I'm nice and smiley. Look at my smiley face. Look how kind and nice I am, but I really can't do anything about it. If he was just good, or if he was just sovereign, you imagine the awe and the fear of just a sovereign deity. Just this deity who is just sovereign, who is just powerful, who is just king, but no goodness. This is neither of those are our God. Our God is good and sovereign. Whatever you're going through, God wants you to know goodness and sovereignty. He loves you and he's in control and he's working it all out, even in your difficulty. And you know our family, you know our family difficulties, but we choose to believe God is good and God is sovereign. 
Now he says a very strange thing. He says, I'm going to show you my glory, but just to protect you, I'm going to put you in the rock. There's a, kind of like a gap in the rock. Can you see that over there? Oh yeah, there's a gap in the rock. I'm just going to hide you in that, and my goodness and my sovereignty is going to pass by. What on earth is that all about? Well, fortunately, the Bible explains the Bible. And a little bit later in Corinthians, we understand what the rock is. Because the rock is not just an outcrop of minerals or resources. The rock is a picture of Christ. The rock is a picture of Jesus. In fact, a famous Anglican minister called Augustus Toplady in 1763 once sheltered in a storm and found a cleft in a rock and wrote the most amazing song, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, may I hide myself in thee. This is all about Jesus. This is the gospel, dear friends. This is when the sovereignty of God should pass by and destroy us when the holiness of God should consume us. Actually, we're in Christ. We're protected in Christ. And he, Moses gets this amazing understanding of being in Jesus, in Christ, hidden in him, protected in him, kept in him. Dear friends, that's who we are this morning. We're a people in Jesus. We're a people in Christ. Now, some theologians even think a rock followed them around the desert. I mean, it's I had Andrew Wilson preaching on this. You, you may even remember him saying this, Natalie, because I think you were in the uh, one he did. Uh, I think you were in the one he did. Andrew Wilson did on Corinthians. Yeah, he said some theologians actually believe that a rock followed them around the desert. Literally, a rock. Oh, there's the rock again. It's like you know, the rocks following us around. Well, I don't know if that's literally true, but a rock keeps popping up all the way through the desert experience. When when they need water, Moses told to speak to a rock. The writer to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10.4 says this, they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. See, that's who, they, see, we need to understand this. Jesus actually is the fulfilment of the glory of God. Jesus, it's not just a nice little picture with Moses hiding in a rock. It's a fulfilment of one day there's going to come the rock. One day there's going to come the one who is the glory of God. There is going to come one who John is going to write about and say this. The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us and we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We've got to understand a bit of the context of this. But Moses was writing this, or it was being written up, in a time, a little bit later in When they were in captivity, Moses' writings were being collated, theologians tell us. And they were so aware that the glory had departed. They were so aware that they were no longer living with the glory in Babylon. They were so aware they'd lost the glory. Ezekiel has this picture of the glory of God leaving the temple. It's dreadful. The glory's gone. There's no more glory. And Deuteronomy apparently has more references to glory than any other book in the Old Testament. And it's like they're writing this up with the glory in mind. And it's prophetically speaking to one day the glorious one would come. One day Jesus in his glory would come to the people of God. And they would never, ever, ever be without the glory. Because Jesus was going to come and they were going to be hidden in Christ, joined to Christ. See, if that's the gospel, dear friends, that we get to be included in Christ. We get to be added into the rock. We get, it's Paul's favourite phrase for the Christian life, in 
Christ. He uses it, some commentators say 130, some say 160. I think it depends whether you count in him, in the beloved, whatever. But in Christ, that's who we are. We're an in Christ people. And Jesus is the glory of God. He came as the glory of God. And you, dear friends, are joined to him. Now, guess what that, what that, guess what that makes you? It makes you to be part of the glory of God. You see, Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Then he left them. (laughs) I mean, it's quite as funny. He says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. By the way, I'm going. (laughs) Uh, You said? And he said, but I'm going to send another one, just like me, who will be with you forever. And he'll be in you. He's the spirit of Christ. And do you know what, dear friends? This situation with Moses can actually never occur today. There will never be a time today when God says, I will remove my glory from the church. Because we now are in Christ and the Holy Spirit of Christ has come to dwell in us. The New Testament picture is of the church like a temple and the glory of God, just like that ancient day, just like Solomon's temple, coming at Pentecost and filling the temple coming and filling us again. And do you know what now that makes us? It makes this the very place of God's glory. Whether you recognised it or not, whether you discerned it or not, God's glory was in our midst today. And we can be aware of it or not aware of it. We can be tuned into it or not tuned into it. But actually God's glory is with us. When we gather together, Jesus says, even if two or three, and it's hard to have a meeting with any less than that, if you, even if two or three gather together, there am I in the midst. His glory is with us. Dear friends, we are now a people, a New Testament covenant people of the glory of God. We are glory carriers. We are the people where God... God comes and he manifests his glory. He manifests his presence. We're not just a meeting. We're not just a gathering. We're not just an organisation. We are the temple of God filled with the glory of God. You need to understand who you are, dear friends. Now, I loved the series you've been going through. I didn't know what you've been preaching through, this acts of kindness. You're not just the glory of God when you're in the King's uh, Hastings Centre. Nearly called it something else, then. You're not just the people of God when you gather here. You're the people of God 24-7. You're the people of God when you go to the supermarket. You're the people of God when you go to the garage. You're the people of God when you go out walking. You're the people of God when you go into the neighbourhood that you live. You're the people of God when you pick the kids up. You are actually a glory carrier. The glory that Moses was asking for, the glory that God showed, which is all about his goodness and his sovereignty, and thrust him into a rock. You, dear friends, are in that rock, and you are carrying about in your very being the glory of God. In fact, Paul's going to write about it later. He's going to write about it in Corinthians. He's going to say things like this. If the ministry, and he's talking about this very chapter, if the ministry, 2 Corinthians 3, 7, was engraved in letters, that's talking about the Ten commandments, if that came with glory so that the Israelites could not look at the face of Moses because of his glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit, that's what we're in, be even more glorious? And if what was transitory, do you know what transitory means? For a moment, 
a short time. If what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory which lasts? It remains, it's on us. We all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory and are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Dear friends, that's who you are. You are glory carriers. He goes on and he says this, And God has made this light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God, not from us. They're in jars of clay. They're in cracked pots. (laughs) That's what you are. You're just a jar of clay. Just clay. Very ordinary. But inside, dwelt within, is the glory. Dear friends, the glory of God is in you. Christ is in you. The hope of glory. He's in you. He's indwelling you. So when you go about your daily business, when you go, you're not just a jar of clay. You're not just a cracked pot. You're not just this ordinary person. You're indwelt with glory. And therefore, glory should come out of you. Glory will spill out of you. That means that we should expect to see things like we've experienced this morning, dramatic conversations with strangers. We should expect to have healings. We should expect to be able to pray for taxi drivers and share the gospel with people like we've been hearing about. That's our destiny. That's who we are. This isn't a preaching series just for the summer to keep you happy. This is the identity of God as to who you are. You are actually glory carriers. You're actually those who are carrying the glory of God. Dear friends, we need to be more aware of our identity in him. See, the world, yeah, thank you. The world talks a lot about finding your identity. Listen, I don't find my identity by finding out who I am. I find my identity by finding out who I am in him, who I am in Christ, and that he is one who dwells in me, and he dwells in you with his glory. I want to end this meeting by asking the musicians to come back. And we're just going to worship for the last few moments. And what I'm believing God is going to do is freshly outpour his glory on us. Now, he was here this morning. He was here throughout the whole meeting. But I want us to be more aware of him in this last part. I want us to be more aware of the glory in us. I want us to be more aware that we're glory carriers. I remember visiting Joanna in the hospital when she was in her coma, been in a coma for nearly two weeks. And, you know, Anne and I walked in and we started to talk. I think I told you this story a couple of years ago. started to talk to the nurses, started to talk to the doctor. And they say, she's been in a coma for two weeks. She, she can't hear you. She can't understand. And we just started talking. And I, my voice is quite loud and, and I'm quite animated. And suddenly Joanna's stirring from the coma. She's coming out of the coma. What's that? The glory of God has just turned up in that place. Not me. I'm just a jar of clay. But the glory's come. See, people, people will come up to Anne and I in restaurants in Greece and say, what's different about you two? I mean, it's just weird. Our neighbours said the other day, went to a party, and they say, oh, you're this special couple. <laughs> special needs, I don't know. I don't know what they meant, but you're, this, you're, you know, you're just this perfect special couple. No, what I think what they can see is the glory. I think they can sense something. And the trouble is we look at the outside. I look at San and see a cracked pot. I look at San and see a jar of clay. God says, no, he's a glory carrier. And it's so important we understand that. It's important. I don't know if you've ever seen those 
films or those documentaries where they put special glasses on people, like sometimes you see them in fire demonstrations where they can see heat or they can see something that the naked eye can't see. And they can see the image of people in buildings that you can't see with the naked eye. I think if only we could put glasses on ourselves and look at each other, you would realise how glorious you are. If we could see the glory of God in one another. And the amazing thing is, the people around us are actually spiritual beings. Now, they've lost their spirituality with God, but they're spiritual. They're looking for something. And with, sometimes with eyes, they see something in us that we don't even see. And yet we fail to reach out to them and give them answers. Yet we fail sometimes to touch them and to communicate with them and show acts of kindness and mercy. I believe, let's end with this. I believe, how are you going to share the gospel with somebody this week? Is it by knowing the four spiritual laws? Is it by knowing any, all these texts? Well, that's great to know all those things. But do you know what? You just need to know God is good and God is sovereign. God will open up some sovereign opportunities for you this week to display, let me tell you what, goodness and kindness. Like that man did earlier. Just a bit of goodness, just a bit of kindness. Actually, that's the currency that we have in our hands. Goodness and kindness, love and mercy. Not anger and frustration like the world sees, but goodness and mercy. What comes out of you? Goodness and mercy is what God wants. I'll end by this verse. I think I may have even quoted this to you last time, but it's such a key verse for me. People are going to continually criticise us for our views on sexuality. They're going to continue to criticise us for our views on parenting, our views on marriage, our views on finances, our views on camping in a field in Sussex. They're going to continually criticise us for some of the crazy things we do. But this is what Peter, who knew Jesus so well, said. Live such good lives amongst the pagans that although they accuse you of doing wrong, we don't like your sexuality, we don't like what you do on holiday, we don't like your money. We don't like your parenting. Although they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. For it's God's will that by doing good, displaying the character of God, we should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Dear friends, we're called to be good. We don't get into heaven by being good. We get into heaven by the grace of God. But we're called to be good. We're called to display our God who is good. We're called to acts of mercy. We're called to acts of kindness. Dear friends, let's welcome the glory of God amongst us. And let's pray that it wouldn't remain on us in a meeting, but we would be carriers of his glory all through the week. Let's stand, shall we? Lord, as we come to the end of this meeting, we know a meeting is a transitory thing. It starts and finishes. But we know that your glory lasts. It's not going to be transitory like it was in Moses' day. It's not going to come and go. It's going to remain. And therefore, Lord, we ask you even now, open our eyes. Give us eyes to see the glory of God on one another. Give us eyes to sense that we're in Christ, that we're in the rock, that we're joined to Jesus. Give us eyes to see that we're glory carriers, Lord. And I pray, Lord, will you send us out from here as glory carriers? I pray next Sunday we have loads of testimonies of how the glory is spilled out, 
how ordinary lives have been, ex- have been touched by extraordinary experiences of God. Come on us, Lord. Let your glory fall on us, Lord. Lord, for your glory. Come, Lord, for your glory. Lord, this is jars of clay crying out for glory. More, Lord, more. Just welcome him. Just start to welcome him. More, Lord. Fill us again. New Testament, it's all about being filled with the Spirit. That's almost always a corporate experience in the New Testament. God, fill your people with the Spirit of God. Fill us with glory. Fill us, Lord, more. More, Lord. Let's worship him.